Welcome back to Fast Asleep. We have another delicious story by our friend Herbert George, H.G. Wells. Uh, if you missed The Magic Shop by Wells, please scroll back. It's lovely. Now this one is said to be his most beloved short story. Go ahead and Google it and you'll see it's true in many forms. It covers three episodes for us, so let's get to part one. Tuck in and enjoy The Country of the Blind. Three hundred miles and more from Chimborazo, one hundred from the snows of Cotopaxi, in the wildest wastes of Ecuador's Andes, there lies that mysterious mountain valley cut off from all the world of men. The Country of the Blind. Long years ago, that valley lay so far open to the world that men might come, at last, through frightful gorges and over an icy pass into its equable meadows and thither indeed men came, a family or so of Peruvians, fleeing from the tyranny of an evil Spanish ruler. Then came the stupendous outbreak of Mindubamba, when it was night in Quito for 17 days, and the water was boiling at Yacuacha, and all the fish floating, dying even, as far as Guayaquil. Everywhere along the Pacific slopes, there were landslips and swift thawings and sudden floods. And one whole side of the old Aruca crest slipped and came down in thunder and cut off the country of the blind forever from the exploring feet of men. But one of these early settlers had chanced to be on the hither side of the gorges when the world had so terribly shaken itself. And he, perforce, had to forget his wife and his child and all the friends and possessions he had left up there and start life over again in the lower world. He started it again but ill. Blindness overtook him, and he died of punishment in the mines. But the story he told begot a legend that lingers along the length of the Cordilleras of the Andes to this day. He told of his reason for venturing back from that vastness, into which he had first been carried, lashed to a llama beside a vast bale of gear when he was a child. The valley, he said, had in it all that the heart of man could desire, sweet water, pasture, and even climate, slopes of rich brown soil with tangles of a shrub that bore an excellent fruit and on one side great 
hanging forests of pine that held the avalanches high. Far overhead on three sides, vast cliffs of gray-green rock were capped by cliffs of ice, but the glacier stream came not to them, but flowed away by the farther slopes, and only now and then huge ice masses fell on the valley side. In this valley, it neither rained nor snowed, but the abundant springs gave a rich green pasture that irrigation would spread all over the valley space. The settlers did well indeed there. Their beasts did well and multiplied. And but one thing marred their happiness, yet it was enough to mar it greatly. A strange disease had come upon them and had made all the children born to them there, and indeed several older children also, blind. It was to seek some charm or antidote against this plague of blindness that he, our man, had, with fatigue and danger and difficulty, returned down the gorge. In those days, in such cases, men did not think of germs and infections, but of sins. And it seemed to him that the reason for this affliction must be in the negligence of these priestless immigrants to set up a shrine so soon as they entered the valley. He wanted a shrine, a handsome, cheap, effectual shrine to be erected in the valley. He wanted relics and such like potent things of faith, blessed objects and mysterious medals and prayers in his wallet, he had a bar of native silver for which he would not account. He insisted there was none in the valley, with something of the insistence of an inexpert liar. They had all clubbed their money and ornaments together, having little need for such treasure up there, he said, to buy them holy help against their ill. I figure this dim-eyed young mountaineer, sunburnt, gaunt, and anxious, hat brim clutched feverishly, a man all unused to the ways of the lower world, telling this story to some keen-eyed, attentive priest before the great convulsion. I can picture him presently seeking to return with pious and infallible remedies against that trouble and the infinite dismay with which he must have faced the tumbled vastness where the gorge had once come out. But the rest of his story of mischances is lost to me, save that I know of his evil death after several years. Poor stray from that remoteness. The stream that had once made the gorge, now bursts from the mouth of a rocky cave, and the legend of his poor, ill-told story, set going, developed. 
into the legend of a race of blind men somewhere over there. One may still hear that story today. And amidst the little population of that now isolated and forgotten valley, that disease ran its course. The old became groping. The young saw but dimly, and the children that were born to them never saw at all. But life was very easy in that snow-rimmed basin, lost to all the world, with neither thorns nor briars, with no evil insects nor any beasts, save the gentle breed of llamas they had lugged and thrust and followed up the beds of the shrunken rivers to the gorges up which they had come. The seeing had become blind so gradually that they scarcely noticed their loss. They guided the sightless youngsters hither and thither until they knew the whole valley marvelously. And when at last sight died out among them, the race lived on. They had even time to adapt themselves to the blind control of fire, which they made carefully in stoves of stone. They were a simple strain of people at the first, unlettered, only slightly touched with the Spanish civilization, but with something of a tradition of the arts of old Peru and of its lost philosophy. Generation followed generation. They forgot many things. They devised many things. Their tradition of the greater world they came from became mythical in color and uncertain. In all things, save sight, they were strong and able, and presently chance sent one who had an original mind and who could talk and persuade among them, and then, afterwards, another. These two passed leaving their effects, and the little community grew in numbers and in understanding, and met and settled social and economic problems that arose. Generation followed generation. Generation followed generation. There came a time when a child was born who was 15 generations from that ancestor who went out of the valley with a bar of silver to seek God's aid and who never returned. Thereabout, it chanced, that a man came into this community from the outer world. And this is the story of that man. He was a mountaineer from the country near Quito, a man who had been down to the sea and had seen the world, a reader of books in an original way, an acute and enterprising man, 
and he was taken on by a party of Englishmen who had come out to Ecuador to climb mountains to replace one of their three Swiss guides who had fallen ill. He climbed here and he climbed there. And then came the attempt on Paris Cotopetl, mm -hmm. the Matterhorn of the Andes, in which he was lost to the outer world. The story of that accident has been written a dozen times. Pointer's narrative is the best. He tells how the little party worked their difficult and almost vertical way up to the very foot of the last and greatest precipice, and how they built a night shelter amidst the snow upon a little shelf of rock, and with a touch of real dramatic power, how presently they found Nunez had gone from them. Well, they shouted, and there was no reply, shouted and whistled, and for the rest of the night they slept no more. As the morning broke, they saw the traces of his fall. It seems impossible he could have uttered a sound. He had slipped eastward towards the unknown side of the mountain. Far below, he had struck a steep slope of snow and plowed his way down in, down it, in the midst of a snow avalanche. His track went straight to the edge of a frightful precipice, and beyond that, everything was hidden. Far, far below, and hazy with distance, they could see trees rising out of a narrow, shut-in valley, the lost country of the blind. But they did not know it was the lost country of the blind, nor distinguish it in any way from any other narrow streak of upland valley. Unnerved by this disaster, they abandoned their attempt in the afternoon, and Pointer was called away to the war before he could make another attack. To this day, Paris Gotopetl lifts an unconquered crest, and Pointer's shelter crumbles unvisited amidst the snows. And the man who fell survived. At the end of the slope, he fell a thousand feet and came down in the midst of a cloud of snow upon a snow slope even steeper than the one above. Down this he was whirled stunned and insensible, but without a bone broken in his body. And then, at last, came to gentler slopes, and at last, rolled out and lay still, buried amidst a softening heap of the white masses that had accompanied and saved him. He came to himself with a dim fancy that he was ill in bed, and then realized his position with a mountainer's intelligence and worked himself loose and, well, after a rest or so, 
out until he saw the stars. He rested flat on his chest for a space, wondering where he was and what had happened to him. He explored his limbs and discovered that several of his buttons were gone and his coat turned over his head. His knife had gone from his pocket and his hat was lost, though he had tied it under his chin. He recalled that he'd been looking for loose stones to raise his piece of the shelter wall. His ice axe had disappeared. He decided he must have fallen and looked up to see, exaggerated by the ghastly light of the rising moon, the tremendous flight he had taken. For a while he lay, gazing blankly at the vast pale cliff towering above, rising moment by moment out of a subsiding tide of darkness. Its phantasmal, mysterious beauty held him for a space. And then he was seized by a paroxysm of sobbing laughter. After a great interval of time, he became aware that he was near the lower edge of the snow. Below, down what was now a moonlit and practicable slope, he saw the dark and broken appearance of rock-strewn turf. He struggled to his feet, aching in every joint and limb, got down painfully from the heaped loose snow about him, went downward until he was on the turf, and there dropped rather than lay beside a boulder, drank deep from the flask in his inner pocket, and instantly fell asleep. He was awakened by the singing of birds in the trees far below. He sat up and perceived he was on a little alp at the foot of a vast precipice that sloped only a little in the gully down which he and his snow had come. Over against him, another wall of rock reared itself against the sky. The gorge between these precipices ran east and west and was full of the morning sunlight, which lit to the westward the mass of fallen mountain that closed the descending gorge. Below him, it seemed, there was a precipice equally steep, but behind the snow in the gully, he found a sort of chimney cleft dripping with snow water down which a desperate man might venture. He found it easier than it seemed and came at last to another desolate alp. And then, after a rock climb of no particular difficulty, to a steep slope of trees. He took his bearings and turned his face up the gorge, for he saw it opened out upon green meadows, among which he now glimpsed quite distinctly a cluster of stone huts of unfamiliar fashion. At times, his progress was like clambering along the face of a wall, and after a time, the rising sun ceased to strike along the gorge. The voices of the singing birds died away, and the air grew cold and dark about him. 
but the distant valley with its houses was all the brighter for that. He came presently to Talus, a slope of rock debris, and among the rocks he noted, for he was an observant man, an unfamiliar fern that seemed to clutch out of the crevices with intense green hands. He picked a frond or so and gnawed its stalk and found it helpful. About midday, he came at last out of the throat of the gorge into the plain and the sunlight. He was stiff and weary. He sat down in the shadow of a rock, filled up his flask with water from a spring and drank it down and remained for a time resting before he went on to the houses. They were very strange to his eyes, and indeed the whole aspect of that valley became, as he regarded it, queerer and more unfamiliar. The greater part of its surface was lush green meadow, starred with many beautiful flowers, irrigated with extraordinary care, and bearing evidence of systematic cropping piece by piece. High up and ringing the valley about was a wall which appeared to be a circumferential water channel from which the little trickles of water that fed that meadow plants came and on the higher slopes above this flocks of llamas cropped the scanty herbage. Sheds apparently shelters or feeding places for the llamas, stood against the boundary wall here and there. The irrigation streams ran together into a main channel down the center of the valley, and this was enclosed on either side by a wall breast high. This gave a singularly urban quality to this secluded place, a quality that was greatly enhanced by the fact that a number of paths paved with black and white stones, and each with a curious little curb at the side, ran hither and thither in an orderly manner. The houses of the central village were quite unlike the casual and higgledy-piggledy agglomeration of the mountain villages he knew. They stood in a continuous row on either side of a central street of astonishing cleanness. Here and there, their party-colored facade was pierced by a door and not a solitary window broke their even frontage. They were party-colored with extraordinary irregularity, smeared with a sort of plaster that was sometimes gray, sometimes drab, sometimes slate-colored or dark brown. And it was the sight of this wild plastering that first brought the word blind into the thoughts of the explorer. The good man who did that, that, he thought, must have been as blind as a bat. He descended a steep place and so came to the wall and channel that ran about the valley, near where the latter sprouted out its surplus contents into the deeps of the gorge in a thin and wavering thread of cascade. He could now see a number of men and women resting on piled heaps of grass, as if taking a siesta in the remoter part of the meadow, 
and nearer the village a number of recumbent children. And then, nearer at hand, three men carrying pails on yokes along a little path that ran from the encircling wall toward the houses. These latter were clad in garments of llama cloth and boots and belts of leather, and they wore caps of cloth with back and ear flaps. They followed one another in single file, walking slowly and yawning as they walked, like men who have been up all night. There was something so reassuringly prosperous and respectable in their bearing that after a moment's hesitation, Nunez stood forward as conspicuously as possible upon his rock and gave vent to a mighty shout that echoed round the valley. The three men stopped and moved their heads as though they were looking about them. They turned their faces this way and that, and Nunez gesticulated with freedom, but they did not appear to see him for all his gestures. And after a time, directing themselves toward the mountains far away to the right, they shouted as if in answer. Nunez bawled again and then once more, and as he gestured ineffectually, the word blind came up to the top of his thoughts. The fools must be blind, he said. When at last, after much shouting and wrath, Nunez crossed the stream by a little bridge, came through a gate in the wall, and approached them. He was sure that they were blind. He was sure that this was the country of the blind, of which the legends told. Conviction had sprung upon him, and a sense of great and rather enviable adventure. The three stood side by side, not looking at him, but with their ears directed towards him, judging him by his unfamiliar steps. They stood close together, like men a little afraid, and he could see their eyelids closed and sunken, hmm, as though the very balls beneath had shrunk away. There was an expression near awe on their faces. A man, one said, in hardly recognizable Spanish. A man it is, a man or a spirit coming down the rocks. But Nunez advanced with the confident steps of a youth who enters upon life. All the old stories of the lost valley and the country of the blind had come back to his mind, and through his thoughts ran this old proverb as if it were a refrain. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And very civilly, he gave them greeting. He talked to them and used his eyes. Where does he come from, Brother Pedro? asked one. Down out of the rocks. Over the mountains I come, said Nunez. Out of the country beyond there, where men can see. From near Bogota, where there are hundreds of thousands of people and where the city passes out of sight. Sight? 
muttered Pedro. Sight? He comes, said the second blind man, out of the rocks. The cloth of their coats, Nunez saw, was curious fashioned, each with a different sort of stitching. They startled him by a simultaneous movement towards him, each with a hand outstretched. He stepped back from the advance of these spread fingers. Come hither, said the third blind man, following his motion and clutching him neatly. And they held Nunez and felt him over, saying no word further until they had done so. Carefully, he cried with a finger in his eye and found they thought that organ with its fluttering lids a queer thing in him. They went over it again. A strange creature, Correa, said the one called Pedro. 